Welcome to the Garden of Belonging, a podcast that explores how we can more fully belong to ourselves. I'm your host, Kim K. Gray, a writer, life coach, homeschooling mom, and fellow human on this journey. Here in the Garden of Belonging, all of us belongs. Here we tend to all those parts we've hidden in hopes of fitting in, bringing forth the beauty that is our fullest selves. Let us journey together to more compassion for who we truly are and more courage to be that person. Today, I'd like to share with you this conversation with Thais Skye. Thais is a truth-speaking, edge-dwelling, trauma-informed life coach and teacher whose multifarious approach to healing has transformed the lives of hundreds of women worldwide. She offers her thoughts weekly on a podcast, podcast called Reclaim, and for over a decade, Thais has coached visionaries, seekers, and cycle breakers who are ready to reclaim their worthiness and take up greater space in the world through her one-on-one work as well as her year-long signature program, Worthy Women Rise. Recently, she has started mentoring coaches who want to deepen their work responsibly. She holds a master's degree in clinical psychology and infuses psychoanalytic theories, social justice, family systems, and mindfulness practices into her approach to tending what she calls the worthiness wound. You can learn more about her at IamTaiSky.com or find her at just about everywhere on social media at, at IamTaiSky. This is a really fun conversation, and um, we really dug in deeply to this idea of um, sort of coaching and um, in therapy and like where the similarities and differences are. Of course, we talk about the worthiness wound um, and a lot also about relationships and what it looks like to um, heal in relationship, why we need relationships. Um, I also just want to say that this doing this interview was an exercise in taking a leap because um Thais is someone that I followed for a while on um, Instagram and have listened to her podcast and at one point she posted on Instagram like hey I'm looking for podcasts to be on and um I decided to reach out even though my podcast is like this tiny little new thing um you know and she may have not even known who I was, uh, but I reached out and she said yes, and um, I am so grateful, and it was a really wonderful conversation, um, so I encourage you to take that leap too. You'll never know what will happen, so I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome, Thais. Thank you for joining me in the Garden of Belonging. I'm so happy to be here, Kim. It's so nice to see your face. Yeah. So this season, I'm talking with folks about this theme of blooming bravely. And I wonder when I say that, what comes to mind for you and how does that show up in your life? Oh, I mean, I love that. First off, I love a good, what is it? Is that alliteration when you do the two yeah. letters? Yeah. <laughs> um, and like, I think we often think of blooming as effortless, right? I think that that's what I love most about that alliteration is that I think the perception is that to blossom, to be our true selves is kind of this effortless enterprise. And therefore there's something so wrong with you if mm. blooming is not effortless. And I think what first comes to mind is like, yeah, that sounds apt. That sounds about right. That blooming is a brave endeavor and requires effort, maybe not to plant 
but we don't know, right? Actually, now that I say that, we don't know what effort it takes for plants to bloom. So yeah, I think that that sounds about right. It takes a special type of gumption for us to live our fully expressed blossomed lives. Yeah. As you were talking about like, what, what is the effort that it takes for a plant to bloom? I was just thinking about all the pollination that has to occur to build a fruit, mm-hmm. you know, to bear that fruit as I watch the bees on all of our like flowers outside. Yes. And I recently learned that the metamorphosis that happens in a cocoon from a caterpillar to a butterfly is not just this like growth of of form, but it's actually a complete destruction of form and creation of new form. Yeah, it's like the caterpillar becomes gummy, becomes mm-hmm. like nothing, and then it forms into a butterfly. I think that that is such a beautiful metaphor for the inner process mm-hmm. that we actually kind of have to be willing to completely crumble and fall apart to make space for a total new evolution of our being and that and we don't all have to do it I mean I know people choose not to and I don't think that I'm morally superior because I want to go gummy but I think for those of us who are attracted to this idea of metamorphosis I think we have to be willing to surrender the parts that aren't working and that is a very brave process yeah totally so what do you think supports us to have that courage to really bloom into our full selves I, my first thought was people, but I think that many would contradict me and say, well, it's actually people that prevent me from growing, you know, the the people in our lives would rather us stay small. I think that that's kind of the, the relationships many of us have are with people who kind of want us to grow, but also want us to fulfill the relational contract of being who they think we are. So, so, so there is that truth, but I don't know. I don't think I could be where I'm at today. And I don't think I could grow alone. I think the self-help kind of mentality needs to die because Mm. I, 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 I appreciate tremendously what it's saying, which is that we live and we die alone. And that our internal world is very much our own to take responsibility of and that no one can do this work for us. And at the same time, I think we blossom and we grow through relationship. And I think particularly those of us who gravitate towards self-help, self-development, the the brokenness that we are gravitating towards fixing will actually probably most likely be fixed within a relationship, not outside of a relationship. Mm-hmm. And that can be terrifying. I mean, that's terrifying for those of us who never really have relationships where we feel fully supported and safe and seen. And yet I, I can't, I can't have any other answer, Kim. It's like people, people support our growth and finding the right people to support our growth is one of the most important cornerstones of our development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with you there. And I think there's a real vulnerability that has to occur when we show up into those relationships and find the ones that are going to really be supportive because we have to be able to be have the courage to to show up fully that's right (laughs) and be seen that's right yeah I remember doing this exercise in grad school with a colleague 
where we were supposed to ask for what we needed. And I asked uh, them to look at me in, in deeply and to see me. And they, they did that. They practiced that. And I couldn't handle it. I couldn't <laughs> handle it. I was like, okay, this is enough. That's Maybe enough. I don't need that. <laughs> Maybe I don't need relationship, actually. But but there, but but it is terrifying. We are terrified of being abandoned, of rejection, of loss, and I think we are also very terrified of being supported, of being held, of being seen, of being contained. I think it's very hard when we don't have an inner template of that to mm. then have that. Um, it's very confronting, and I think it really requires us to slowly expand our capacity and. That's very difficult work, but but very gratifying when we when we do it because relationships can actually be tremendously nourishing and healing. Um, but it, it won't come in and it's not in and of itself. We have to work mm. towards that. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think supports us to to build and foster and find those relationships? I think the typical conversation would take us to conversations about needs and boundaries. I mean, I think that that's an important conversation. It's prolific in the industry, particularly right now, for some reason, <laughs> although I'm sure there are reasons that we can think about together culturally, politically, but, but there's a lot of conversations happening right now about needs, advocating for your needs, stating your needs. I love those conversations. I love co- talking about needs and then boundaries. Um, so, so because those have been talked about so amply, I think the direction I want to go to towards is the, the more that we can reconcile and recognize the ways in which we push people away, mm. the, the greater the likelihood that we'll be able to take people in. It requires a certain amount of kind of fortitude and internal strength to be able to be in a healthy relationship because there has to be a certain amount of allowing the other person to be an other person. Mm-hmm. You know, my professor um, said to me the other day, um, and I've been talking about it in almost every single corner of my universe because I'm so obsessed with it. Like, can you trust someone you can't control? I mean, what type of question is that? <laughs> the very, very cornerstone of trust, right, is to, to not be in control. But I think we often find that where we feel quote unquote safe, the relationships that we feel quote unquote safe in are the relationships we feel like we can control, the mm-hmm. ones that we can manipulate, the ones that we've kind of contorted ourselves, people pleased ourselves into relationshiping. But that's not actual relationshiping because relationship requires the other to be another. So the question is, how can I cultivate a sense of safety in relationships I can't control? You know, mm-hmm. how do we safety when we've been taught that the ways in which we create safety is actually a a way in which we try to control another yeah there's a sense of like wanting a predictability I guess to feel safe um you know and I run up that I run up against that just not even in relationships but just for myself is this idea that like the way I feel safe is to have control and predictability but in fact, like life is not like that. And as you're saying, relationships, like healthy relationships aren't like that because we need to allow the other person to be responsible for themselves. And we need to allow the world to change around us and us to change within it. 
Um, well, that's exactly right. And you're, you're, you're speaking so perfectly to this conundrum, which is in order for us to feel safe in relationship, the predictability is actually then leading us to relate to the, to how, who we think the other is and not actually who the other is. And then we fall into dangerous spaces of believing that the other is needs to be a certain way in order for us to be safe. Now, I use the words I, I use the word safe because I think it's very normalized now. But I but I'm always weary of using the word safe because mm. I think it can be very weaponized. Of if you don't make me feel safe, that's on you, not on me. Yeah. And and then it can very easily lead to conversations about abuse and um, trauma. And I think we need to be very linguistically aware that if we start to use definitions that are way beyond what the word means, then we start, the word starts losing its value. Mm-hmm. So when we think about safe, you know, there is a certain amount of emotional safety, physical safety, relational safety that's required for any relationship. If you're, if you're in a relationship with someone that you don't know if they're going to physically hit you, you're not safe. If they're, if they're verbally abusing you, you're not safe. That is a fact. But, but how about we move into more nuance of like the person will never physically abuse you. They've never, they will never, you know, name call you. And yet we have this sense that we're not safe. That's where I'm curious about is like, what is that? Why don't we feel safe in relationships that, that haven't shown any evidence that we are not in danger? Mm. And then that becomes an internal conversation rather than a, a, a rem- needing to remove yourself from the relationship type conversation. I hope I'm making sense. Yeah, no, I'm just like, I'm seeping it all in, letting it all seep in. Cause it's, there's a lot of some powerful questions and thoughts there. Um, well, it just, I think that ties into your work about the worthiness wound that comes up there of like how do I feel worthy in this in this and safe um because because the worthiness wound right which I've named I've dubbed this kind of phenomenon that happens inside of us where we feel broken inadequate too much not enough the worthiness wound I've kind of conceptualized it as a relational wound mm. means that we're not born unworthy Mm-hmm. I don't believe I really don't think babies come into this planet thinking I'm inadequate, I'm unworthy, I'm insignificant. I think it becomes an imprint in us through the ways in which our caregivers and the world relates to us. And if we feel emotionally held, if we feel like our caregivers are curious about our internal state, if they can tolerate us being angry with them without um, punishing us, if they can kind of hold us in their minds without being destroyed, being destroyed meaning turning away, meaning me yelling as a five-year-old, I'm angry at you and mom you know, yelling back at me or turning away, punishing me, something like that, right? The more that we are in a caregiving dynamic where our really our parents are modeling to us that they can tolerate our internal state we learn to tolerate our internal state we learn oh I'm 
feelings are this and I'm we we learn the language of our of our internal world but more often than not through subtle and not ill-intentioned ways it's not about right. ill intention through subtle ways we often get the message that our internal state pushes away the other it's too much for the other don't feel like that don't do that don't be like this don't say this don't do that um, we, and they say that through words or through action. And so we start to learn through the relationship that our internal world is too much or not enough. That's the imprint of the worthiness wound. That's that kind of sense of who I am is not okay. And so if we're seeing the worthiness wound as a relational wound, as a, a modeling from our caregivers, can then we, how do we heal it? It's not gonna happen by reading or affirming a mantra that we are enough. It's mm -hmm. just not gonna happen through books. It, it can help our intellect, it can help us understand, but ultimately the experience needs to be in a relational dynamic where someone is helping you make sense of your internal world and they don't turn away. And through that very carefully curated kind of experience, that corrective type of experience, we start to learn, oh, actually I've never been too much or not enough, right? I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually full and whole and complicated, messy and perfect human, but there's nothing fundamentally wrong with me. Mm -hmm. What do you see as some of the um, actions or behaviors that come from the worthiness wound? The biggest ones that I work with with my clients, these are certainly not all, but the biggest ones are people pleasing, perfectionism, and this perpetual comparitis, right? Comparing ourselves to others. Those are like the three big ones, but but they're not the only ones. Sabotaging mm -hmm. ourselves in relationship, continually being in relationships with people who aren't emotionally available. I mean, there's so many different ways that it can manifest, but I often work with those whose worthiness wound manifests through people pleasing, right? People pleasing is inherently a protective way in which we learn how to orient ourselves towards the other person rather than orient towards um, our own sense of self. So we develop a sense of self through the lens of an other. So why do we do that? Because we think that there's something that's so wrong with us that if we don't do that, then we'll be lost, damaged, mm -hmm. punished, abandoned. Perfectionism is another self-protective behavioral set of traits that make us, that, that it comes from this idea that if we can be perfect, we'll be loved. Mm -hmm. And then comparitis is a big one where there's this chronic sense that somebody else will give us permission to be ourselves. If we could just see ourselves in somebody else through their perfect, wonderful, beautiful lives, then we'll be able to finally see ourselves in our, in our lives. So those are some of the ones that I tend to work with the most because they most resemble my own manifestations. Of <laughs> but of course there's, there's so many others and we each have to find that ourselves, how it manifests for us and think about what is driving the, this core sense of feeling inadequate. What do we notice ourselves doing as a result of that, that core mm -hmm. sense of brokenness? Mm -hmm. And do you see the worldliness wound as something that we can like heal or break free of, or is it something that is sort of, we learn to live with? 
I think like a, a combination of all that. I think okay. I often use the language of like heal the worthiness wound because it's easy. It's easy palatable language to understand. I think it's very tantalizing of a of a gift. Like, oh, if I could just do this that Thais is promising me, like I won't ever feel inadequate again. I use that language very thoughtfully though, knowing that there is no gift, that there is nothing I could five steps that I could give anybody that would heal the worthiness wound. I do think that there is management of it. I do think that there is tending of it. And I do think there are ways to make it smaller. But I mean, Ken, let's think about like the world that we live in, you know, let's think about systems of oppression. Let's think about the injustices of this world, like just the general unfairness of being human. We can think about the eco genocide. We can think, I mean, there's so many different ways in which we're seeing the world's worthiness wound, where we're seeing the ways in which systems, society, cultures perpetuating the narrative of inadequacy and not enough. We see it through capitalism and consumerism. I mean, so, so if we live in a world that's so baked in, you know, kind of oppressive, ways of interacting and being together can and one individual ever not carry this I don't know I think that's a big weighty task it's kind of like asking for the person to take on the weight of the world mm -hmm. so I think on that level I don't know if we can ever I think the, there needs to be some really heavy system changes and I don't know if that will ever happen so I think in the world that we live in, we're always going to have an, a level of believing we're inadequate, not enough. I don't know if it has to be so big in our lives. And I, and I don't think it has to be so paralyzing, overwhelming, demoralizing, spiraling, painful, as it can often feel. I don't think that it has to be that way forever. So mm. in that way, I do see hope in this work. Yeah. I'm curious what you think about how we the word come, come back comes to mind, but I feel like that's just a little aggressive, but, um, you know, to heal that wound while we're in this, in these systems that perpetuate it, right? Like yeah. how do we, how do we like, how do we work within that? It's, it's, it's this delicate balance of, we both have personal power and we're victims of, right? Like just because we live in systems of oppression doesn't mean that we have to kind of, um, that we don't have any say, we don't have any power, we don't have any capacity. You know, we each as individuals do have responsibility for our measure of it, our part in it. So, so there is a level of personal power that we all have. And then we are all victims. We are all, I say we are all, I mean, those of us who carry marginalized identities, the more marginalized identity, the more we're, we're navigating systemic oppression, right? So, mm -hmm. so, but that would feel foolish for me to say that somebody who carries multiple identities that are marginalized in our, in our world are now doomed and gloomed to right. carry a, you know, a worthiness wound forever. I, I don't, I don't see it that way. So, so it, it's a delicate balance of systemic oppression is a thing. It affects us. It imprints beliefs into us. And we have, we have power in how we navigate it. We have decisions that we make. We have ways that we can address and tend to ourselves so that we don't participate in these systems, so that we 
locked, unlocked our own kind of revolutionary power of potential within us, you know? So, so we got to navigate these two things very carefully because we don't want to victim blame. Mm -hmm. And we also don't want to um, make it sound like we don't have any ability to navigate these things. Yeah. I think it kind of comes back to what you were saying about healing and relationship, because if we can build relationships with people who understand the world in the same way and like, don't reflect some of those, those, um, systems of oppression back onto us that maybe we get a little bit more, we feel a little more supportive, supported because there's more like our ideas are reflected in others. Sure. Absolutely. And when I say, you know, healing in relationships, I think there are specific relationships that we can heal ourselves in, not all relationships. Right. Um, And now we're starting to get into this idea of like getting professional support, you know, working with a coach, a therapist, a heal, you know, whatever language resonates, whatever work resonates. But we, if uh, the danger of not getting a, any type of professional support is that we will probably just perpetuate what we know. Mm-hmm. And so having someone who can see us from a different lens and can help us see our own baloney, right? Like our own <laughs> stuffs, then then that can help us break the patterns. That's kind of what I mean about healing and relationships. It, it can be a tantalizing and terrifying idea that any relationship can be healing. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's necessarily yeah. true. Well, that puts yeah. a lot of pressure or exactly the idea of responsibility onto that relationship. That's right. And that can be a really big, <laughs> big pressure and responsibility. Yeah. 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 Well, and that's another way that we could then be like put taking the responsibility off of ourselves and putting it on mm-hmm. someone else. Like you're going to help fix me. <laughs> yes. And we do this all the time. I mean, I think the desire that other people that, you know, that a relation, a healthy relationship will just stumble upon a healthy relationship. Right. And in the meantime, we're stumbling upon really shitty relationships and it's because of the other person. The other person is the the crappy person, right? (laughs) And we just need to remove all the toxic, quote unquote, people in our lives. And then eventually we'll just find the healthy ones, like they're fruits on a tree, you know, discard the crappy ones, the broken ones, and eventually you'll come upon the ripe oranges and boom, (laughs) you're in these thriving, healthy relationships. And like, the bad news <laughs> is that that is literally not how it works. Mm-hmm. The good news is that's literally not how it works. <laughs> right. you know, we, I don't like to use the word toxic because I don't even know what that means. And I think it, it perpetuates this idea of like disposability. And if we dispose mm-hmm. of all of our relationships, we're probably going to be disposed, right? I mean, um, let's be honest, if we view people as, um, discard like we can just discard relationships without showing up in them then who's going to be there for us and then we're just going to be left alone thriving healthy relationship takes effort of both parties that means that we have to see where we are quote unquote 
where we're bringing the painful patterns and dynamics, mm-hmm. where we're hoping that the other person will be able to save us, that if they could be different, then we would be happy. Yeah. Yeah. Not sexy work. Again, <laughs> blooming bravely, man. It requires bravery to really commit to healthy relating. Yep. So you started to talk a little bit about um, getting professional support. Yeah. And you're a coach. And also have gone back and now have your master's in clinical psychology, right? That's right. Um, so what do you see as like the commonalities and differences in those two areas, uh, bit coaching and psychotherapy? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are both extremely different and extremely similar. I think both industries want to pretend that they're very different. Um, because it benefits them to see it very different. And I think it's actually quite scary how similar it is and how irresponsible that is. You know, I went back to school and got my master's because I was doing deep emotional work with my clients and, and started to feel like maybe there was a level of irresponsibility in it. Um, and like, I, I, it was my own experience. I'm not saying that all coaches are irresponsible for doing, if they're doing deep emotional work. It's just for me, I wanted more tools. I wanted, I, I was reaching the edges of my limitations and wanted to do um, more education. I wanted to learn more. And so I went back, got my master's and realized, oh my gosh, there is this whole field and a whole different way of seeing people and working with people but it's quite exciting and thrilling. And um, I've been very, very blessed to find a lot of really cool people that see the world in a way that feels very expansive for me and, and has taught me how to deepen my work. So, so the goal has been achieved, yay. Um, <laughs> but the challenges are that the, the world of mental health is um, seen as a, an extension of the medical industry it's seen as well just as you could have diabetes you could have a mental illness right Mm -hmm. it's seen as all kind of mental disorders are a consequence of some physiological issue and this hasn't always been the case but this is where the mental health field is gravitating more and more towards so you go to therapy because you have a mental illness you fix your mental illness and then you are better right? Anxiety is a, is a illness. It's a problem. You need to go get it fixed by a professional, just like you would if you have a physical issue. This is like totally different language than the world of coaching. Mm-hmm. You know, coaches don't use this language. They don't understand things that way. They may use words like depression and anxiety, but, but they don't see anything medical about it. Um, the, the coaching world is, is all about kind of marketing and this idea of self-development, self-improvement. And so they, both industries see themselves as very different. But the truth is, if we strip away the medical model of the mental health world, all, well, not all, most clinicians, psychotherapists are attempting to understand the nature of human suffering. Yes. I mean, that's the core of it. And I would say that that's the core of what coaches do too. Mm-hmm. Um, the, how, the how of the getting there 
can feel very different and also can feel very similar. I don't see much difference between mindset coaching and CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. It's, it's the same stuff. It's just packaged and marketed, I think, different. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question at all. It's, it's like I'm so in the, the weeds of it right now, Kim, <laughs> that like yeah. I both have clarity in it, but, I'm, but I also sometimes have a hard time giving the 30,000 feet view of it because I'm so immersed in it. But therapists don't really respect life coaches, don't really see sees life coaching as irresponsible and as a threat to their work. And life coaches kind of um, don't see themselves doing anything mental health related. So they don't see other therapy as a threat to their work. And I think that that's also really, really interesting. Yeah. And I know like I see some mental health professionals adding coaching. I kind of, I guess I see both things. I see coaches like you going and getting mental health education. Yeah. And then I also see mental health professionals going into coaching, but yeah, I, I see where there's a lot of kind of overlap it. What do you think about the, there's a big difference in training. Yes, for sure. I think there's many reasons why a therapist would become a coach. You know, the coaching field is unregulated, Hmm. so you don't have to follow any rules and there's laws and ethics that you have to abide by to be a licensed psychotherapist. Um, And that's nice. Like, you know, even though everything's virtual right now with the pandemic, I am not legally allowed to work with someone outside of the state of California mm-hmm. as a psychotherapist, Yeah. period, period. If I have a client that I've been working with for 10 years, let's say, and she decides that she wants to live six months in Florida, legally, I'm not allowed to work with her. There are some things that are changing, some states that allow this like temporary period of time, you know, and like, who's going to really know, right? (laughs) So there's some that type of stuff going, but the law says that your licensure ends at the border. There was even a question on my law and ethics exam that said, if you're on a phone with your client, you're on the phone mm-hmm. with your client having a phone session and they tell you that in 20 minutes they're crossing the border into Nevada, what do you do? And the right answer is you tell them that in 20 minutes you have to stop the session. Yeah. It, so, so therapists don't want to work by that rule, right? They want to be able to work with anybody in, this, in the country or in the world. And so they, you know, then coaching is the answer in a way. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then sure, there, there's many therapists who want to work with, um, they don't want to do the deep, the deeper kind of work. They want to work more high level with people and I, I, you know, to each their own, whatever they want to do. I'm the opposite. I want to go deeper. I want to do deeper work with people. I want to do substantive, long-term meaningful work with people. And the coaching world, I've done that in the coaching world, but it's not the norm, right? The norm in the coaching world is short-term, high-level, kind of quick, quick, quote-unquote, results. 
So I'm straddling both worlds. It's a little confusing, a little disorienting. <laughs> Nobody really gets it. I don't even really get it. I'm just trying to <laughs> figure it out day by day. It is confusing. And at the same time, I think the proliferation of life coaching happened as a consequence to the fact that it oftentimes feels that therapy is inaccessible. And so part of what I feel like is eventually going to be my mission is to guide people to understand that it can actually be more accessible than, than people think. Yeah. Well, and there can be the stigma too of like, well, I can only go to a therapist if something's wrong with me, quote, sure. right? right? Right. I'm struggling with like depression and anxiety or you know, whatever, some sort of diagnosable right. mental illness. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like if I want, like, let's say my mother and I keep getting into a fight, you know, I would then probably feel more tempted to get a book about the mother wound and look for a coach that does mother wound work, for example. And I would maybe look for a therapist because I don't have a mental illness. Like I don't have what I consider anxiety or depression. I just am struggling with my mother. Mm -hmm. So why would I go to a therapist? And I think that that's the way in which the coaching industry has stood out, right? It's like, you have a very specific problem. I have a specific solution. Um, and I can understand that. Like it, it's easier to, to then find someone who is specific about mother wound you don't see that in the coaching, I mean, in the therapy industry, you don't really see anyone say like, I work with, you know, people who struggle with the relationship with their mothers. It's not as a marketable, but niche in the world of mental health. Yeah. Well, and are you like, can you niche in that way? Or do you need to be available because of insurance or like guidelines and things? You could. About, no, you, you could. could. Yes. Yes. They, it's not the norm. Yeah. And but you certainly could, and you don't, you know, um, if you want to be on an insurance panel as a psychotherapist and take on clients through insurance panels, then sure, you would also need to be specific around your mental illness repertoire of, of things that you'd work on. But in terms of like, if you're in private practice and you're marketing your work, I mean, sure, there's plenty of therapists who market themselves as like prenatal postnatal mm. care for the mother for example mm -hmm. um, that's a very specific niche and that's not you know I guess you could call you know postpartum depression uh, uh, a mental illness I guess if we're using that language but but not necessarily right yeah. but you're right Kim you're really you're really right that I think therapists tend to niche themselves around mental health diagnoses and not not like challenges that people experience and so that feels then inaccessible to people who are looking to actually fix the specific problems in their lives so the industry the mental health industry perpetuates itself that you can only go to therapy if you're if you have a anxiety depression something along those lines and so the coaching industry kind of make billions of dollars <laughs> unregulated <laughs> with a lot of, you know, get you people. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's a real variation in what training you can have. 
Yes. What's what does certification mean? I mean, anyone can create a certification program and then market it, and everyone has that certification, and it means nothing in terms of their ability to actually do do work. Confusing. Both industries have its pros and have its cons, and both industries um, um, has work to do to be um, more accessible, ethical, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I love both industries. Mm-hmm. I love the coaching world. I think it's very, um, one. I've seen wonderful coaches do wonderful work. I have a, a mentorship where I have both one-on-one mentees and I also have a mastermind. And it's so cool to listen to these really ethical coaches grappling with the complications of doing this work and doing it really thoughtfully. It's like, it gives me so much hope that there's really good stuff happening in the coaching industry. So I don't think that it has to go away or that it's bad or wrong or broken, but I do wish that there was more thoughtfulness of, of more responsibility. I think life coaches or coaches in general think that they're not operating with people's mental health. Mm-hmm. But the truth is you are doing mental health work. It may not be illness, disorder, diagnosis. It may not be that language, but you are working with people's mental health and therefore there's, you have a responsibility to do ethical work. And I, and I think we're all struggling with what ethicability, you know, kind of looks like, but, but I don't think that there's a norm in the industry to get supervision, to get support around your actual coaching. It's all about building a business, you know what I mean? And that's Mm -hmm. something that comes out of the world of psychotherapy that I think is so powerful this understanding of consultation, supervision, you know, group support, reaching out to your colleagues for help around a specific client, that type of norm that's in the therapy world, I wish mm-hmm. was more of a norm in the world of coaching. Yeah. But I see people like you, you know, creating these programs for coaches that can foster some of that. You know, I think I've seen a couple other people doing something similar. I agree. It's, it's getting there. It's happening too slowly though. (laughs) And, and also I think a lot of coaches think, oh, that's on that. Like I'm doing good. I don't need this. Right. Right. They need this, Mm -hmm. not me. Oh, other coaches need this. This is a great thing, Thais, for those people, but not (laughs) for me. And I think what's important is for us to model actually me too. You know, I've been in the world of coaching for 10 years and I get supervision, you know, like I get support around my clients, not because I am not good at what I do. Or I'm incompetent, but that I really care and I have blind spots and I don't, I often miss what's happening and having someone to talk about it with can be so, this is how we fine tune our skills, not mm. just in getting more and more in classes, you know, yeah. like we fine tune it by bringing our knowledge right to the work. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. It's a good. <laughs> I mean, you're helping me as I'm talking about this. I'm making sense of it in my mind. So I, I appreciate the questions and this dialogue. You know, I, I'm certainly not the end all authority. I just am a person with a lot of opinions. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's a way to that there's this bias, what is it called? Where we think we know more than we do. And I think it's really, really important for us to stay learning, stay Mm -hmm. in this 
kind of mindset of continual learning and growing because we yeah. actually know very little. Yeah. And, and knowing and being shown our blind spots for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And that's the same when we talked about healing and relationships, right? I mean, this is just an extension of that just for a specific career, but if we heal within professional relationships that, that are relational and that we can grapple with what it means to be in a relationship and what it means to do our own inner stuff with somebody, then the same could be said about the power of mentorship, supervision, whatever we call it, which is that we heal our worthiness wound, our inadequacies, our fears of being a bad coach, being wrong, being whatever. We tend to that in relationship with someone whose whole job in that moment is to help you make sense of what's happening in your work. Yeah. Very valuable. For sure. Yeah. So if you had one tip for my listeners about how, about how to bloom more bravely, what would it be? Like, where would, where should they start? The, the, phrase that came to my mind right now and I'm just gonna kind of riff on it is just this idea of like like root where you're planted you know this idea of like bloom where you're rooted what is the phrase yeah it's escaping me as well bloom where you're planted sounds great so it's gonna go with that I don't know if that's the right one but but it's this idea of like there's there will always be at some time, the grass is always greener, right? There's always the future, which is better than the present in our, in our minds and our fantasies. And I think there's something really powerful about letting yourself be fully rooted here, like really own what is, he- we don't have to look for our healing elsewhere. We are already where the healing can take place in the most powerful, potent way. So the tip I guess would be, you don't have to, do anything more than look at where you are. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're like, where do I start, Thais, in like healing the worthiness wound? Well, where does your inadequacy come up the most for you? That's where, that's where you start. You know, like, okay, you heal in relationships, Thais, but like, how, you know, how do you, how, what relationship do you choose? Or, you know, what, where do I start? And it's like, well, what relationship are you struggling with the most? And what are you struggling with the most in that relationship? right there is the perfect place to start. Wherever we are, the, the perfect combination of healing and brokenness is, you know, you don't have to go do some special retreat somewhere to tend to what is here. Mm. So root, you know, mm-hmm. really look at and examine the places that don't feel good. This isn't the fear is that we're spreading negativity if we focus on negativity, but, but actually, if you don't look at what's not working, it's not going to continue to then suddenly, it's not going to suddenly work. Yeah. It won't go away. Just painting it gold. <laughs> I wish it would because gold is great and pretty, but right. It's like putting whipped cream on poop. <laughs> it can hide the poop a little bit but eventually that whipped cream's gonna melt and you're gonna be left with the shit you know it's like or yeah. another metaphor that we're using because of plants right now is like weeding right like if you're weeding a garden like you have to actually get it by the roots you can't yeah. just snip off the top and expect the weed to go away and I think that that's what 
positive thinking tends to lead us into doing, but yeah. get to the root, you know, get support, get help. Don't do it alone and examine where you are and allow your life to bloom. I love that. Yeah. So I'm curious if like anyone's work stands out to you in this moment, in this area of supporting people to bloom bravely that you would want to give a shout out to. There's some really wonderful people out there doing incredible work. I mean, okay, here's, here she is. Okay, so I'm a big fan of a woman out there named Mara Glatzel. Mm-hmm. Um, she is just a phenomenal, phenomenal human and I adore her. And she has a background in social work and a master's in social work and um, does really incredible coaching. And I just admire her so much. I wanted to look up her handle and her handle is, in fact, her name. So it's Mara Glatzel. Um, follow her on Instagram. You know, I'm always a fan of getting people to that 10K follower number because mm-hmm. then you get the swipe up feature and all good things happen on Instagram when you get to that <laughs> 10K. So go follow her. Help her get to that 10K. I couldn't think of a human who's more deserving of it. Yeah, she's wonderful. And she has a podcast. She does have a podcast, which is wonderful, which is wonderful. I've had her on my podcast. I mean, she's just, just one of those humans. That's like such a a hidden gem. And it's like, Mm. what? I don't understand Instagram following. I don't get how some of some people have like such a mediocre, (laughs) if I could say that presence online and they have like hundreds of thousands of followers. And then some people, it just doesn't make sense to me how the thing works. But like Mara's one of those humans that's like, it's everyone can benefit from. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Thais, thank you so much for taking this time to chat with me today. Thanks for having me, for having this conversation with me. These are all complicated subjects. There's no easy solutions, but I'm here to be in the murky waters with people and figuring it out together. You know, we don't have to do it alone. Yeah. I think that's a, a good reminder that has been coming up throughout our conversation is yeah to do it alone that's right that's right thank you for joining me in the garden of belonging i'm so grateful you've chosen to spend your precious time with me if you enjoyed this episode please be sure to like subscribe and tell friends about it your efforts support me in reaching more people Be sure to also check the show notes for ways to connect further with me and my guests. Until next time, I'm wishing you trust in your inherent belonging.